Ruth chapter number 3. Ruth chapter number 3. And preach on this subject a late night proposal. Um, I dare say most of us, when we got engaged, it was because the man did the proposing, right? That's our culture, just what we do. Uh, uh, you know, I know Jill was dying to ask me to marry her for a long time, so I just tried to beat her to the punch. What well, it is, and that's just some of you, I'm sure, in the same shape, right? Uh, so I think that's how, how it was. She gave me a look like she don't remember the story that way, but y'all really pray for her mind slipping a little bit. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> he, he's done giving me the signal. <laughs> Moving on. Dude, I'll get ready to say something else. He must saw the bills spinning. He done cut me off. Yeah. You know, I've got to recover with this. Uh, try to be serious. Sometimes it's hard. Uh, but I believe we ought to have joy in our Christianity and uh, enjoy life. Ruth, chapter number three. Uh, Brother Jay read this portion of scripture. So I want to just read the first uh, uh, four verses right now, and then we'll cover the rest as we, we, we work our way through the text. Uh, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now it's not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast. Behold, he went with barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor, and make not thyself known unto the man until he have done eating and drinking. It shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet, and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God and this time to worship. Thankful for the good Sunday school class and uh, everybody that, that has made it out. I know it's a challenge every time this, that we lose this hour, but thankful for those that are here. Pray you be with our, our church family that's traveling. Watch over them. Keep them safe on the roads. And uh, Father, we just give you praise for all that you're doing in our life. We look forward to Wednesday night already. We're looking forward to the fellowship and being in Gary and Wendy's home and hating that Gary's going to miss but God we know that your presence will be there and we just thank you so much that we can worship you we don't have to go to a particular temple particular building it's about your people and Father we're thankful that we're part of the family of God and the work you're doing in our hearts in Jesus name Amen, amen. Uh, there's a Truth, I believe we need to recognize right off the bat as we study the book of, of Ruth and especially historical narratives and the lives of individuals, whether we see them in the Old Testament, whether it be Haggai, Zechariah, whether it be life of Moses or Joseph, um, whether it be Esther, uh, whether it's the book of Acts, and we see how God worked in the apostles' life and how God worked in Paul and Barnabas' life, Paul and Silas and, and uh, Dr. Luke and various ones and the points we have the history uh, of the early church in the book in the book of Acts uh, when we look at these historical narratives and see these people number one the real people 
they're, they're, they are real people. They're common people like you and me. But we always need to remember this, that the Lord works out his sovereign purposes while being intimately involved with people who would, without him being involved, are just ordinary people. He's intimately involved in their life to carry out his purposes. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that's encouraging to me. It's very encouraging. He's involved in someone ordinary like me to carry out something extraordinary that's a part of an eternal plan that's greater than any mind could ever muster or comprehend or even put together a plan even close to what God has done in, in eternity past. Now, may we never forget that. And so being part of his eternal purposes makes us anything but ordinary. We need to grasp that, that he loved us so much, he knew us from eternity past, that he set his affection on us, and with that, we're part of something glorious. You see, I believe this, that Romans eight twenty eight, we know it very well, and we know that all things work together. That's something we know emphatically. All things work together for good. You say all things are good, but all things do work together for good. Not everything's good in life, but everything comes together for good and mixes together proportionally, rightly, just as God has put the recipe together. It comes together for good to them that love God and to them that are called according to His, what? His purpose. And you just read the rest of it, and you think God didn't have a plan and a purpose. You've not read the rest of the chapter, right? You've just not read. And anyway, uh, let me tell you, God has a plan that intimately involves you. I think it's important to remember that. God's plan often in our life does not make any sense. That's the second time I believe we need to see with that. Uh, we have a finite mind trying to grasp something that's going on that's been created by the infinite mind of God. Oftentimes we do not grasp it and it makes no sense. And sometimes his plan seems very coarse or chaotic, illogical, and sometimes it's very painful from a very human perspective. That's his plan. Uh, and, and thirdly, we often don't perceive his plan until he's orchestrating it before us. You know what I normally realize all those things in the past, what God was doing, suddenly when he begins to orchestrate it right before my very eyes, like, oh, I see what God's doing. That's how that works. It's unusual. But, but I, and that's what normally happens. We usually rejoice in his plan and purpose when we look back. Not what we're looking for, but when we look back. But we need to learn to trust him to be able to rejoice in his plan and purpose looking forward even when it doesn't make sense. You understand? Because he can be trusted. Now, we come to this passage and much of the customs of marriage and proposal obviously a little bit different. And even as we see in, in the New Testament, if you know the story of Mary and Joseph, there was a betrothal period that was a very serious period of time that when more than engagement, right? You can break an engagement, you just out money for a ring, right? But in that day, if you broke your betrothal, your engagement... You had to get a written of divorcement, right? And it was a period of testing. And, and it was different. Well, I didn't chase all the customs down. But it ultimately go on for a year and as, as a proposal. I want you to think about how serious that was. Now, we come here, though, and what we see is that 
this is a little different. Because everything we see within this passage is the woman proposing to the man. And it, this seems strange. Now, ladies, I do not advise you to go into any, if you find a fellow handsome, do not sneak into his house in the middle of the night and lay down at his feet in the bed. He was startled, was he not? I, I, you do it this day and age, you like to get shot. I mean, I couldn't imagine waking up with somebody being at, listen, you'll come in there and I come back from Georgia and I haven't been sleeping, I don't know, I haven't slept hardly at all. And um, I'm just telling you, you run around with Ron Crisp, he's hardcore. And uh, and so him and Manaz, I was ready to sleep, had to run back out, so I lay down a couple hours. And she came up here to make sure I was awake. I think I did a complete flip in the bed, jumped up, ready to fight. I didn't know what was going on. I thought somebody's come to get me, and she jumped back. Like, what in the world? But I mean, uh, so I can imagine it would be safe. But we have this, and it seems strange to us, does it not? But there's a lot playing out here that I believe is important for us to see. And what Ruth does is not immodest. There's nothing immoral about what she does. It was an ordinary custom of that day. Not only what we would say maybe in proposal, but also recognizing someone to take care of you that would be responsible for you. And although we don't understand cultural norms, they're important. Even if sometimes in churches people just rebel against every custom. Well, we don't understand sometimes how they come to be and why we keep doing them, but that's the normal way in which people do things. This was something Ruth was not used to. This was something that Ruth, it made no sense at all to her. They didn't do that in Moab. She'd been asked to do something that she just had to take Naomi by faith. Naomi said, I want you to go and, and go in in the middle of the night. So, number one, I want you to notice the plan. The plan. In verses 1 and 2, that, that the Bible says that Naomi, her mother-in-law. Now, as you remember that Ruth has just returned working in the field. She didn't, and there's been some period of time, but she's been keep going back to the fields of Boaz. And you see God's hand of providence at work. Boaz taking care. And Ruth has done, uh, Naomi's done announced to Ruth that he's a near kinsman. That uh, and don't go to any other fields. Stay, stay by him. Stay with his uh, maidens. Stay there the whole time. He's near kin. Uh, he's one of our near kinsmen. And so Naomi tells her daughter-in-law, uh, shall I not seek rest for thee? Shall I not seek rest for thee? Now, what he means by this is security. Now if you remember Naomi was this bitter old woman but everything changes in chapter 3 once she realizes what God is doing. When she begins, her faith is restored once she sees how God's hand of providence is at work. And so that's what happens when we get our eyes off God, we can get bitter. And we look back at everything that's hurt, and we're not looking forward by faith. At this point, it seems Naomi is looking forward by faith, and some time has elapsed, and she begins to encourage her daughter, shall not find rest for you. Now, you remember when she left Moab, she says, I don't have a son that can marry you. And I'm, I'm, I'm too old to have any more sons if I was to get married. And are you going to wait for them to grow up to marry them according to custom? She says that it's ridiculous to think that. You see, she didn't have any trust and faith in God because she'd been out of the will of God for so long. She didn't do anything but get bitter, right? And now she's headed home, and when she's at the back at the right place, it's amazing what God does in her heart. And I've seen people do that in church. Let's be honest. 
They, they get backslid and, and, and they, you, so you need to come to church. Or I don't feel like going to church. Well, go to church anyway. Amen. If you're one of God's people, go to church anyway. Because you may show up and you may not anything. The next thing you know, God may do a mighty work in your heart. Right? He may do a mighty work. And, and it's what's happening. So when you get back to where you belong, God will do his, his job in you. Now, he can get you back one way or the other, right? Or he can get you wishing you went back a long time ago. But you see, what happened here is suddenly everything changed. I better move on. He, she wants rest for her daughter-in-law. She needed rest from what? Uncertainty in her life. She needed rest in that. She needed to find personal fulfillment in life. Her life basically was empty, no purpose. And she wanted provision for her daughter-in-law. And she said, let me find you rest, which means security. She needed security in her life, but she needed a redeemer as well. To have this purpose, to have this provision, to have uh, this personal fulfillment, everything she needed would be found in a redeemer. Now, verse number two, and now is not Boaz of our kindred. He's somebody that is related uh, to Elimelech. He's somebody that's in our family. With whose maidens thou wast, behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Now, I explained this a little bit last week, and I'm going to give a little bit each week explaining about the kinsman redeemer. Probably last sermon, I'm going to load it up about the kinsman redeemer. But I want you to understand that what was a kinsman redeemer? Just by, by memory, it was one who was a relative, according to, to the law and various laws of the Pentateuch. He had a privilege. And he had a responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, whether that trouble be financially, physical trouble, whether he was in danger, or that he was in need, right? He had this. The, the Hebrew term goal uh, for kinsman redeemer designates one who rescues, one who redeems to purchase back, pays a ransom, we might say. Uh, that delivers. It is someone who is a deliverer, a rescuer, and a redeemer. This is what the job is of this kinsman redeemer. And, and so the kinsman redeemer also could vindicate a, a relative. They could vindicate them. And, and, and there's many passages. I encourage you, Leviticus 25, 25 through 28, Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. Uh, I encourage you to write those down. We'll look them up. But you see, Boaz is a next of kin here. And it means to serve. This word means to serve as a kinsman what? As a kinsman redeemer. He's one who could serve in this capacity. He was one who could restore. He was one who could redeem. He was one who could save the family. He could be literally rescued the family of Elimelech. Why? Because Elimelech died, his two sons died. He did not have anybody, a son that was coming up, neither one of his daughter-in-laws, that could carry on the family name. So basically his name would be lost for all generations. His heritage would be gone because he had nobody to carry on the name. And so when we think of a kinsman redeemer, their responsibility was to restore the family's personal property. They've not got a financial fix and they've had to sell it to get money or, or, or they, because they're just in trouble. Now, we know we can talk about how the land would come back to them, but they would have to sell the land 
in, in, in a pinch. And you know what would happen? Well, they could, the near or the kinsman dreamer, often would, they would be a brother-in-law. They all call it the Leverite marriage, the brother-in-law marriage. That, they, that if a man died and he left a, a wife that had no sons to take care of her or no children, he was to marry her. And if he owed money, he was to take on that responsibility. It was to become his. And if he married her, he was to have children by her. And if he had children by her, it wouldn't carry on his name. It would carry on the name of his brother or next of kin. The, uh, and they, the children they have, they would receive everything that belonged to him. You see, this was a huge responsibility. It protected the family rights. It preserved the widow. And it propagated the family name. Right? Because there was nothing, you can imagine, it's detrimental in their custom of thing. Of, because ancestry was huge. To lose everything. You know, something's interesting here. That Psalm 1 says, Blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth his fruit in season, fruitful, solid, grounded, plenteous, uh, productive. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Notice what it says here. But the ungodly are not so. The ungodly are not so. They're like the shaft that the wind driveth away. Interesting. You know what? <clears throat> Look at this passage. You know what Boaz was doing? He was in the threshing floor and he was tossing up the wheat into the air. The way the wind would catch the, the shaft and take it in the husk and blow it away. And what was left was his grain that would hit the ground. And you know what it is? That, that's what's left. And, and the Bible describes the ungodly like that. That they would be, you know what? The ungodly, they come, they spring up, they live. You read it in Genesis, it'll tell you that they were born. And, 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 and it'll tell you that or they died. And, but you know what? God's people, they continue to exist. And, and they continue to go on, and they continue to go on, and, and, and they, they, but the ungodly are not like that. They're here, they're like the shaft, and they're, they're remembered no more once this world's over with. I mean, they're gone, but the people that are God's people have a name written down in heaven that will never be forgotten. Amen. And may we remember that, that Jesus said that don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to come to you, but rejoice that your names are written in, in heaven. And, and you remember in Revelation chapter 13 and 8, or 16 and 8, and he says, The beast that thou sawest, which was, send out the bottomless pit. And I'm not going to hear tell you who the beast is, but here's what I want you to notice that the, the people that were deceived and the people that were lost, who were they? Well, they were the ones whose names were, were not written in the book of the life, right, from the foundation of the world. I want to tell you something, friends. It means something when you have your name written down. That there is a preservation of seed. And what is transpiring here, there is one in this passage that can preserve his name. Right? Preserve the name of the one who's lost everything. And may I remind you, we only have one person that can preserve her name. Amen. Amen. Only one. And so the preparation we see is interesting. 
Preparation. I don't want to try to keep moving. I find myself sometimes, oh, this will be a short sermon. And I'll chase rabbits. But and there's a lot to chase. But notice verse 2. Is this not Boaz or kindred? He's one that can be a redeemer. Whose maidens that tell you, you've been with. Tonight, he's going to be in there. It's his turn to win with the barley. And uh, she says, go wash thyself. Good advice, ladies. You want to get a boyfriend? <laughs> take a bath. <laughs> put on some deodorant. Good, good advice. Put on some, some good looking clothes. You know, something attractive, something pretty. And that's what she tells her to do. And, and, and uh, But now she, this ain't good advice necessarily. I ain't going to go with the rest of it. But that custom is perfect. Mate, don't, don't let them know that you're there. That you just kind of stay out of sight until he's done eating and drinking. So the Bible says that she gives her advice. When he goes to lie down, you see where he lies down. There's probably other people in there. You lie at his feet. And uh, he'll tell you what to do after that. Now that you understand, this had to be scary. This was not according to her custom. This was strange. She had to take Naomi by faith and do something that she was very uncomfortable with and trust that God was going to work everything out and that everything would be fine. And so she says to her, everything you said, I've done. I want to tell you something. There's something about Ruth. She, she's a sweet, sweet lady. She just, just trusted, right? She has faith. And, and so we, we see this preparation. She prepared herself. She obeyed. They had a plan. But notice the proposal in verses 69. And she went down to the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. Now Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry. And he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. Now here's how it goes down. Whether the Baptist want to believe it or not, I do not believe when it says he's drunk means he would just don't believe he's drunk and the drunk says he couldn't pass a uh, a field sobriety test, but he was drinking because he was merry. It was a time of celebration, right? Nothing strange, nothing ungodly, nothing wrong about this. It, but So I'd rather take the Bible, what it says, as what man says. And I know people say, well, the Bible says, you know, that, that there's all kinds of warnings about, there is all kinds of warnings about drunkenness. I'll agree. There's all kinds of it. But this is not what it's talking about here. But he was merry. He, they, they, they celebrated and he lays down. And she marks the place where he's at. And she goes and lays down at his feet. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid. I say so. There's a woman at his feet. She uncovered. He took it. The Bible tells us that if she did what, what Naomi told her, she uncovered his feet. In other words, she took of, of, of the tunic he's wearing and, and takes part of it off his feet and covers her. Takes the robe and, and cut. Why does he do it? it? It's symbolic of something. It's like uh, a mother hen covering up her chicks with her wings of protection. We spoke of God covering us with his wings. It meant that he was bringing us in. He was securing us because he loved us. That we we're a part of his people. There, it's a euphemism found throughout the Old Testament. And so it's nothing strange here that we're, we're seeing that's transpiring here. But but I dare say when he woke up and this lady's at his feet, this was this was shock. It was a very shocking discovery, and and there's discussion that uh, that comes about. And what what happens? Well, 
She, he says, who art thou? Well, she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaiden. He says, spread thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art near kinsman to me. See, nothing immodest about this. Something what the Bible illustrator says, uh, this act has been a very prominent part of the marriage ceremony amongst Orientals. And that's what they would have been considered. Uh, we're, we're considered Occidentals, right? Right? And uh, yeah, I didn't know, you didn't know that, now you know. Uh, Occidentals, I, I mean, I better move on. Occidentals and Orientals. And so the bridegroom would throw his skirt of, of his robe over his bride. And in the Ruth, in the act that Ruth here is described, it's, is a very significant action, which she's claiming, I want your protection. I want you to give me an honorable acknowledgement that you will become my husband. It's a proposal of sorts. Ruth's conduct, no, not here, is not a question of purity by no means. But what's interesting is the promise that he makes. And I want you to see this because this had to be very startling for him. She calls him out on his near kinsman. In other words, there's responsibility here. There's something that you can do for me. This would have been a tense moment for Ruth. She don't know. She's trusting her mother-in-law. She said, go do this. This plan sounds crazy, does it not? I mean, this is loco. I'm, and he wakes up startled. She, this is not going good. Who are they? And she gives the spiel. It had been an uncomfortable moment, but the first thing he does is acknowledge her. Notice verse number 10. Blessed be thou of the Lord. I believe he gave her comfort when he said that. Made her feel comfortable off, off the bat. Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, insomuch as you followed not the young men, whether poor or rich. You've not went after, you've not been somebody trying to chase money. You've not been trying to find somebody dashingly good looking. He's probably middle aged, a little bit older than her. I don't know. But he acknowledges her. And does he acknowledge her? He affirms her. He recognizes the very fact that, that she was someone of character, that she was someone of worth. So he acknowledges her, he affirms her, but he also assures her because verse number 11, he's not responding at this point other than he's acknowledged. But notice he says, For now, my daughter, fear not. I will do all thou requirest. I, I believe. He could have acknowledged her being a godly woman. He could have acknowledged her being a good woman, a woman of character, and not yet assured her that he was going to marry her. But you know what he does? He lets her know, yes, I have a desire to marry you. I want to marry you. And, and, and so the Bible says, Now my daughter, fear not, I will do all that thou requirest, for all the city that people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. He assures her, but he also accepts her. If you remember in verse number four, Naomi is saying, go do all. You go do this, uncover his feet. She's having to do this by faith. Go to Boaz. Who's Boaz? Near kinsman. He's a redeemer. Go to his feet. And then you do everything he tells you to do. She didn't have a clue what was going to happen this whole time. She's just obeying. And so he accepts her. And he recognized, and, and that's why you see what a contrast between verses 4 and verses number 11. But you see, I want you to understand that, that if we look in this passage, there's four times in this chapter 
In, in verse 4, verses 7 through 8, verse 14, that Ruth had fallen at the feet of Boaz. And uh, she's at the feet of Boaz. It mentions his feet. In chapter number 2, verse 10, she falls, falls at the feet of Boaz and, and being thankful and gracious to what he's done for her. But now she's coming to him as a proposal of marriage. In other words, she has to come to his feet. And, and so she's asking him to obey the law of the kinsman redeemer and take her to be his wife. Let me say, I'm thankful that we still have a kinsman redeemer, that all who will come to him and all who will fall at his feet and cry out for mercy, that he will not only just acknowledge us and not only affirm us as being people that are created in his image with intrinsic value in that and, and acknowledge maybe who we are, but he will assure us because whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Some people say, Brother Grant, how can I know that I'm saved? We can complicate it. We can talk about our uh, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, and we can talk about, uh, you know, he foreknew, he called, he predestined, he, 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 where he called, he justified, and then we justified, he glorified, and we can talk all the tenses and how all this work in eternity past, how sanctification's coming about, how we're being controlled or, or molded into the image of God. But let me just tell you something right now, that if you will take the advice of Naomi, what you need someone to give you rest, you need someone to give you peace, you need someone that can give you hope, you need someone who can restore the very things that sin has taken away from you. What you simply need to do is to go to the feet of the Redeemer, amen, and fall at his feet and trust him and trust his character of who he truly is. And I promise you that all that will come to him, he will know I pass out, amen. Salvation is not that difficult. I preach against easy believism in the sense that we're trying to just use it as a sales pitch. But I promise you this, people have been coming to church and people have been believing and people have been looking to the Lord and they want to be saved. Just look to Him. Come to His feet. Call upon Christ. Say, Lord, save me. Lord, be merciful to me. And I promise you He'll be merciful. I promise you he'll be merciful. And so uh, salvation is easy when God's in it. It's so easy, so easy. And you know what? He accepted her. You see, I want you to understand, never, never forget this in your life, that God has divine, eternal purposes that intimately involve you. And you may be going through things in your life and you're questioning why and you're struggling. You may be hurting and, and you may be overwhelmed. But understand this, that God has a purpose. And you will understand it better by and by. Because all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them that are the called according to His purpose. Secondly, if you're unsettled in your life, and you're at a place of uncertainty and doubts, the best thing you can do is take the advice of Naomi and step out by faith. She said, Brother Grant, I don't understand. Let me just tell you something. When I got saved, I didn't understand a whole lot about any of those doctrines I mentioned earlier. When I started to preach, honest God's truth, I could not quote John 3.16, Mike. 
Somebody said John 3, quote, John 3, 16. Probably a month before uh, I, I surrendered to preach, I was reading the Bible and somebody talking about Old and New Testament. And I was like, what are you talking about? I was dumb. I mean, I was dumb. I, was, I understood there was a difference and where Jesus come. I was dumb. I was just reading the Bible. I didn't have the training of the people I had. I mean, I didn't know. I mean, I, I was ignorant. But I'm, God, I'm glad that God, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to get saved. It doesn't take a scholar for God to call to preach. It just takes someone that, whose heart has been touched by God in, in both incidences. And so let me just say to you, you have a near kinsman that if you will go to him and you'll put your faith in him and you'll throw yourself at his feet, I tell you, there's no better advice than to get to the feet of Jesus. Amen. And, and, and I mean, I could beat a dead horse with this. If you want to think about God and his divine providences, there was a prodigal son one day that left. And he said, how many hired servants my dad had bread enough to spare? Now he could have wondered and thought, you know what? He ain't going to accept me. I'm going to have to do this and I'm going to have to do this. But he finally comes to his senses and said, I'll go home. Amen. I'll go home. And when he got back, his dad said, throw the robe on him. Dad ran out to meet him, hugged him. Why? Because people could have stoned that boy when they seen who he was. He disgraced the family according to the law. He could have been stoned, but he, he, he is shielding him. He's spreading his wings around him. Amen? Amen? And he said, put a ring on his hand. He belongs to me. He has authority. Put shoes on his hand. He's not a slave. He's my son. This my son was dead. He's made alive. He's lost. He's found. Amen? Now, I'll tell you, it wasn't that hard. He just had to head home. He just had to come. The lepers, they, they cry out to the Lord, have mercy, and that's all it took. That's all it took. You'll find that you, you, there's a woman with an issue of blood. How complicated was she? She said, if I just touched the hem of his garment, it worked. It worked. Amen. There, there was a father who had a daughter that was dying, and, and he, he threw himself at the feet of Jesus, said, my daughter lies at the point of death. And even when they said, your daughter is dead, trouble Jesus no more, he said, fear not, only believe. You keep trusting. It wasn't anything magnificent. Do you understand that? All they did, he kept believing. Jesus showed up and raised her from the dead. Raised her from the dead. Man, I want to tell you something. We need something to happen in our life. You better get to the right source. Get to the right source. I mean, they, they, listen, we, we found this lady, Ketchius, that was caught in adultery, and they brought her before Jesus, and they said, the law says, the law says that she should be stoned. What do you say? Trying to catch him in horns of the dilemma. But I thought about Romans. Because the law is given by Moses, the grace and truth come by Jesus Christ. Amen. The law demanded her to die. And there's one great lawgiver. There's one greater than Moses that stood there that day. Amen. The Bible says this, but the law worketh wrath. It does. For there is no law, there is no transgression. Amen. I want to tell you, Christ, the greater lawgiver, was one to offer mercy that day. And there was going to be no transgression held against her if she's in Christ. What a glorious picture. And I want to tell you today, the best place you can get to if you're not saved is at the feet of Jesus. And He can do the great work, meet your needs. There's people today that they don't have assurance of nothing. They need to be know that they're loved. They need to have, have assurance of so many things. If they've just come to Christ, they can be saved. Have mercy. Our Father, I thank you for the word.